Bring your Bible with you tonight? Very good. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ezekiel chapters 4, 5, and 6. We're going to talk tonight about God's grace. Aren't you grateful for God's grace? It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's abundant. Where sin abounded, God's grace did super abound. And so we're going to magnify the grace of God tonight and talk about uh, what Ezekiel was given charge to do in order to present the message that God gave him to present. Ezekiel was an unusual man. And you're going to find out as we go through our study in Ezekiel that God told him to do some very unusual activities. And we're going to look at a few of them here tonight, but as we go through uh, this book of uh, Ezekiel, you're going to see uh, many other ways that God got his message across through this prophet named Ezekiel. So if you have your Bible open there, let me ask you now to turn and look at chapter 4. And we're going to read, first of all, verse 4. And then verse 6 in chapter 4. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. And then verse 6. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have laid on you a day for each year. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. So tonight, Lord, we pray that your word would penetrate our hearts. Let us, Lord, be open before you, that you might speak to our hearts. We want to hear what you say to us tonight. So I pray that you'll anoint the teaching and preaching of your word and anoint our hearing that we might be able to hear from you what you would have us to hear tonight. We love you. We bless your name. You're a good and wonderful father. And we pray all of this in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen. Tonight... God's grace in the midst of judgment. One little word of review about who Ezekiel is and where he is and why he is where he is. Ezekiel is a prophet who was a priest before that. He was carried off from Jerusalem over to Babylon in the year 597 BC, just a little over 10 years before Jerusalem was invaded and sacked by the Babylonian army led by King Nebuchadnezzar. He is the prophet to the uh, Israelites, the the, uh, residents of Judah and Jerusalem, who were exiles in Babylon. Actually, he is in a POW camp with all the rest of the exiles who are there with him. Three different times, Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem to carry off different groups of people that he wanted to bring to Babylon. He did this, of course, for political reasons, but you and I have the spiritual reasons behind what was going on in public. 
We know things about what happened because of the Word of God. And therefore, when we see and hear and read about Ezekiel and what he was doing, we see what God was doing in the, behind the scenes, so to speak, even though the people were experiencing what they were, they could only see what was on the outside. But you and I, and people like Ezekiel, the prophet, knew what God was doing in the midst of them. So first of all, we see point number one in your outline is this. We need a sin bearer. We need a sin bearer. B-E-A-R-E-R, bearer. It's kind of hard to say, but that, anyway, it's easy to spell. So we need a sin, a sin bearer. Here's where God told Ezekiel, you're going to bear the sin of the people, both of Israel and of Judah. It's unusual what God told him to do, but look there again with me at uh, verse 4. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. And then again, verse 6, when you have completed them, that is, on your left side, lie again on your right side, and you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. People have always needed someone to bear their sin. They've always needed someone to bear their iniquity. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and you find Adam and Eve who sinned, and they needed someone to help them. God, who is their judge, was also merciful and gracious to them because he, instead of, uh, instead of their dying uh, in every sense on the day that they ate that tree, that fruit of the tree that they were not supposed to eat, he killed instead an animal, took the skin of that animal and clothed them with that animal skin, symbolizing the fact that a substitute had to die because they had sinned against God. And then you look at Moses and all the laws of the Old Testament where Moses was given these by the Lord that uh, people were to bring their sacrifices to the tabernacle or the temple and they were to bring them in order that their sins might be covered. They were to bring a lamb or a goat or an oxen, whatever it was that was required in order to cover their sin. Over and over and over again, the priests at the tabernacle were offering sacrifices for the sin of the people. If there was one thing that God was trying to communicate to his people over and over and over again by those sacrifices was this. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. That was the message he was trying to bring to his people, but they never did really understand it during those years. And then you look at Isaiah chapter 53, and he is looking forward to that sin bearer. We saw Adam and God uh, kill the animal there in the Garden of Eden. We see the law of Moses where the people brought their animal sacrifices to have their sins covered. Isaiah, the prophet, was looking forward to the time when the ultimate sin bearer would come, he referred to him in Isaiah chapter 53, and he said about him, he will bear the iniquity of many. Isaiah was looking forward to the coming of the final sin bearer. Then you have Ezekiel who comes on the scene after Isaiah, and we find him here acting out the part of the sin bearer. His, his work here was to 
demonstrate to the people that they indeed were sinners, that they were in Babylon because of their repeated sin over and over, really over decades and centuries. And finally, God had enough and said, you're going to Babylon. Now he is requiring Ezekiel the prophet to lie on one side and then lie on the other side in order to be a demonstration of the fact that someone had to bear their sins. Ezekiel was there to do that. He was God's man to bear the sins of the people of Judah, but before that, the people of Israel. And then you have finally coming in the New Testament, that one that was prophesied by Isaiah and Ezekiel and many others, the coming of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who when John the Baptist saw him said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came into the world to bear our sins. And that is exactly what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. He said, he himself bore his, our sin in his own body. When Jesus died on that cross, after having said to the people who were, who were there listening to him earlier in his ministry, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When Jesus stretched out his arms on that cross, he was giving his life a ransom for many. He was the ultimate sin bearer. All of those stripes that Jesus bore on his body, those nails that were driven into his hands and feet, that crown of thorns, that spear in his side, all of that Jesus took for us that he might bear the sins of the entire world. We need that sin bearer. We have that sin bearer. Praise God, his name is Jesus Christ and he has borne our sins. He has carried our sorrows. He took them to the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. He drank that vile dry and turned it upside down. And here is the very son of God who is the one who bore the sins of the entire world. Aren't you grateful tonight for the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate and final sin bearer. There need be no one else come later because as Hebrews tells us, he came finally to bear the sins of the whole world. And once he did all that and went back to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father on high, indicating and signifying God's final approval of his sacrifice, he sat down to indicate that the work was done. We need a sin bearer. Is he your sin bearer tonight? Have you trusted him? Do you know him as your personal sin bearer and savior and Lord and master? If you do, wonderful. If you don't, I invite you to come to him tonight. Number one, we need a sin bearer. Number two, disobedience brings consequences. Disobedience brings consequences. Now, in your outline, I, uh, I'm, the, the outline is correct. The, um, I changed the references a little bit. We're going to stay in chapter 4 before we go into chapter 5. So just stay there in chapter 4. And I want you to see that there were four different ways that God instructed Ezekiel to, be a, to have a dramatic presentation to the people about the consequences of their disobedience. And the first one we see in verse 1 uh, of chapter 4. So look there. You also, son of man, take a clay tablet 
and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Lay siege against it. Build a siege wall around it and heap up a mound against it. Set camps against it also and place battering rams against it all around. Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and me, between you and the city. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. What's going on here? God tells Ezekiel the prophet to take a clay tablet. Now, this, these were very numerous in that part of the world at that time. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered over the years thousands of these clay tablets that were written on, and uh, they had different signs on them. Uh, by the Babylonians, by other civilizations that lived before and after them. This was the way that they wrote their records and kept them. The clay on the top of the tablet was soft, and then after whatever was written or marked on it was finished, they would put it out in the sun so it would harden, and, and so the message would remain on there. God told, told uh, Ezekiel, take a clay tablet, and these tablets are about uh, 14 inches by 12 inches, almost a square, and he said, draw on there a, a drawing that looks like the city of Jerusalem. So that's what he did. And then he placed that tablet in a certain spot. And then he put some things around it that indicated that the city of Jerusalem was going to undergo a siege from an army, an invading army. That, of course, was going to be the Babylonians. They had been to Jerusalem already, uh, in fact, uh, twice before that, and would go again, uh, finally, to destroy the city. But here is, is Ezekiel giving this message to the exiles who are not in Jerusalem, but he is showing them what is going to happen to Jerusalem. There were false prophets in that day who said, don't worry about the fact that we're here in Babylon we're not going to be here long. God is not going to let his, his chosen people stay in Babylon for long. We'll be back in uh, Jerusalem before long at all. But God sent, uh, he sent Ezekiel and other prophets to say, listen, do not listen to these false prophets. You're going to be here a long time. In fact, in Jeremiah 29, as many of us have uh, part of that chapter as a favorite verse of ours, when God said, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for evil to give you a future and hope. In that same section in Jeremiah, he tells them, settle down in Babylon, build homes, establish businesses. You're going to be here a long time. In fact, Jeremiah said, you're going to be here 70 years. And that's what it was. So, but Ezekiel here, he is given the task to demonstrate to the exiles in Babylon that Jerusalem is going to be besieged. It's going to be destroyed. So he put a siege ramp up next to it. You know, in ancient times when they, most of the important cities anyway had walls around them. And so when an attacking army wanted to defeat them, they would build a siege ramp that is made out of, of rocks and stone and dirt and they would start way out away from the, uh, the walls of the city and just build it gradually up over the course of time. It would sometimes take a year or more to build a siege ramp 
so that once the siege ramp was finished, then the army would come up that siege ramp and they would attack the city. So the people who were inside the city had to watch all this going on outside, and typically the attacking army would surround the entire city so that no one who was inside the city could leave and no one could come into the city to bring them any kind of food or other supplies. So Ezekiel here is, is showing that there is a siege ramp going to be built and there are people around it, army around it, and it's going to, they're going to attack Jerusalem. That's the first message he wanted to get to the people. The second one is the one I read a few minutes ago about Ezekiel lying on his left side for 390 days and then after that lying on his right side right there at the city of Jerusalem that he has just constructed with those siege ramps and all lay on his right side for 40 days. Now, what was the purpose of that? Well, we've already read that Ezekiel was the sin bearer. He was the demonstration of the fact that someone needed to bear the sins of the people. So Ezekiel lays on his left side first to indicate that he's bearing the sin of the people of Israel, that is the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, many hundreds of years before this, right after Solomon died, the kingdom split, the, the unified kingdom split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was so idolatrous that God sent a, uh, an army called the Assyrians in 722 BC to destroy the city of Samaria, and they carried off the residents of Samaria and the residents of the entire northern kingdom, except for a few people who were left there. So when, when Ezekiel is laying on his left side to bear the sin of, of the uh, northern kingdom, the Israelites, he, he, God tells him, lie on your left side for 390 days. Now, obviously, that's well over one year. That's a long time to lie on one side. But it was a demonstration of the fact that Israel's sins were so horrible that it took a long time for Ezekiel to demonstrate and for them to see the results of their sin, their disobedience. And then he's to lie on his right side for 40 days for Judea. Israel, 390 days, which every day stood for a year. Judah, 40 days. Why 390 for one and 40 for the other? I'll tell you a little secret. I don't know, okay? <laughs> Let's just let that be between us, okay? My best guess is that 390, well, let me go back and say, the number 40 is significant in the Bible. I, I know you know that. Uh, the, the rains came for 40 days and 40 nights in the time of Noah. Uh, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And there, there are many other things in the Bible that are related to the number 40. So, of course, with Judah, you have 40 days, which would indicate the, the completion of their of, of Ezekiel's need to bear their sin, 390 days is 10 short of 400, which would be a multiple of 40. And so what it indicates is that Samaria, their punishment 
was never really fully over with. But Judah's eventually was. And let me tell you why I say it like this. First of all, because the people of Samaria, the northern kingdom that were carried off into Assyria, they never came back. They never came back and had a country. Now, some of them eventually moved back because there were Samaritans who lived there during the time of Jesus. But most of the people who were living there at the time, 722 B.C., most of them never came back to Samaria. So what the 390 days could mean is that their punishment never really ended. The 40 days for Judah, on the other hand, was significant in that after their, their exile was complete, some of them did come back to Jerusalem. It was a perfect uh, way of God saying, come on back to Jerusalem. So that's the 40 days there for uh, Ezekiel to lie on his right side. Okay, so we've got a clay tablet, which indicates the siege uh, of Jerusalem. We have God telling him to lie down, which speaks of the duration of the siege or the duration of the punishment. And then thirdly, we have food. Look with me now at, um, at verse 9. Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. Also, take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Put them in one vessel and make yourself bread of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it. And your food, which you shall eat by weight, 20 shekels a day, from time to time you shall eat it. You shall also drink water by measure, one-sixth of a hen, that's H-I-N, uh, from time to time you shall drink. And you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Then the Lord said, so shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them. So I said, Ah, Lord God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts or has uh, abominable flesh uh, ever come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I am giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety and shall drink water by measure and with bread that they may lack bread and water and be dismayed with one another and waste away because of their iniquity. So the third dramatic presentation that God tells Ezekiel to do here is something to do with what he would eat and drink. He was to make bread out of these five grains here, uh, six, I think, wheat, barley, beans, lentil, millet, and spelt. He was to take a small amount of that, mix them together, and make bread out of it. Now, some of you may know that there is a bread made now that you can buy in the grocery store called Ezekiel bread, and it is made of these same grains. Um, but the reason that God told Ezekiel to do it like this was it was to be a picture of what the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going to experience when Nebuchadnezzar's army came surrounding them 
and to defeat them and destroy the city of Jerusalem. They are going to be hungry. There's not going to be much to eat. He was supposed, Ezekiel was supposed to make this bread, and he was limited to eight ounces of bread per day. Eight ounces per day. And he was limited in water to about 10 ounces per day. Now, that's not much bread to keep a man alive, and it's certainly not much water to keep someone alive. So the purpose of God doing this, though, was so that it would be a demonstration to the people that when Nebuchadnezzar's army is surrounding Jerusalem, they are not going to have much to eat. In fact, they will eventually run out of food, and they will not have much water. Jerusalem like many of the cities in that day and time, did not have a, an active flowing water like a river inside their city. To get water, they had to go outside the city walls. And so if they were surrounded by an army, they could not go out and get water for fear of getting either killed or taken captive. And eventually, they could not have any food brought in by anybody so they would eventually run out of whatever food they had. So he says, I'm giving you this command. I want you to eat the bread like this and drink this small amount of water. Now, when God told him to use human waste as, as fuel uh, to cook the bread on, that was offensive to Ezekiel, which I would imagine it would be offensive to most people, right? Uh, so he said, God, I, I've just never been to fire like that. I just can't do that. So God said, okay, I'll cut you a little slack here, Ezekiel. So uh, you can use, instead of human waste, you can use cow waste instead. And so it, that was a common uh, fuel that the people used back then, and even to this day, so I'm told. Many uh, people still use it in that part of the world. They, they uh, leave it out in the sun so it'll dry. They combine it with straw, and they burn it for fuel for their fire uh, to cook on. And uh, Ezekiel was supposed to set the fire, let it go to ashes, and then put his bread on there to cook it. So, doesn't sound too appetizing, does it? I would imagine the smell of that stuff burning would be enough to turn your stomach. I hope I'm not turning anybody's stomach tonight. What did you have to eat tonight? Don't tell me, don't tell me, Okay. And so he's to eat this bread, and he's to drink this water, and that's all he is to have to eat and drink for a total of 430 days. 390 on his left side, 40 on his right side. So we know he wasn't lying down 24 hours a day because he had to get up and fix his bread and, and fix his water. Maybe he just did this for a certain number of hours every day. We don't know for sure. But we know that uh, he didn't do it all the time because God, immediately after telling him to do that, also told him to cook his own bread, get his own water. So here is, though, another picture of what God is showing to the people of Israel and Judea about what he's going to do to the people who are still living in Jerusalem at the time that Nebuchadnezzar attacks the city. And then the fourth thing is also kind of weird. And it is uh, in chapter 5 now, and it has to do with, it, with the prophet's hair, with his hair. So 
So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 5. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword. Take it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard. In other words, use this razor to cut your hair off and to cut off your beard. Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. Now, good old Ezekiel, he must have had a good, pretty good bit of hair if it took scales to weigh them. So now he's totally bald on the top and totally bald. His face is shaved. He's clean shaven for first time maybe in a long time. And God tells him what to do then. Look at verse 2. You shall burn with fire one-third, that is one-third of the hair, in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one-third and strike around it with the sword, and one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. Now, would you agree with me that that's kind of weird? That's, that's kind of unusual. Okay. What is going on here? You notice that after God tells him to shave his head and his beard, that essentially, he says, divide it into three parts. Have the scales there so you can get them evenly divided. After they're divided, throw a third of it into the city that you have made out there, that, uh, that clay tablet that you drew the city of Jerusalem on. Throw a third of it there. Take another third and kind of scatter it around that little city. And then take your sword and just start cutting it up like you were cutting something else besides hair, but like, like you're cutting. And then one-third of it, you just throw it up into the wind. And then you take a little bit and put it in your pocket, basically. So we don't have to wonder what he meant by that because he tells us. Look at verse 12 of this same chapter. One-third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one-third shall fall by the sword around you, and I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. God is telling the people through this dramatic means of Ezekiel that a third of them, that is those who are in the city of Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar attacks it, a third of the people of Judah and Jerusalem, they're going to die by pestilence and consumed with famine. They're going to starve to death or they're going to have a pandemic and they're all going to die. A third of that of his hair meant that he, the third that he put in there indicated all the people of Jerusalem uh, were going to die. And then a third of them are going to fall by the sword. 
That was indicated by the hair that he spread around on the outside of the city and took his sword and started cutting it up. That was symbolic of uh, the soldiers cutting up people around who, were, who happened to be outside the city of Jerusalem. And then there was another third that are just going to be scattered to the wind. They're just going to be dispersed all over the place. And they think they're going to get away, but they won't. Because what does he say? I'll draw out a sword after them. They think they'll get away, but they won't. A sword will find them where they are, and their disobedience will catch up to them as well. So you put all those things together, and it is a very dismal outlook that the people of Israel and the people of Judah are facing. They're going to face the consequences for their disobedience. And it is a horrible consequence indeed. But God has told us in his word that sin always brings consequences. Disobedience always brings consequences. Be sure, the word of God says, your sin will find you out. And then point number three. And this is really where we get into the grace of God and and my time is almost gone, but let me go ahead and talk about this. Point number three, God always leaves a remnant. God always leaves a remnant. He didn't completely destroy all of his people. He left a few to carry on what he had called them to do. Let's pick up the reading now at chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Yet, I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered through the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me and by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evils which they committed in all their abominations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. God always leaves a remnant. Here, Ezekiel hears God say, you know that, those few little strands that you put in your pocket, that represents the remnant. There will be some who will survive. When he said over here at verse chapter 5 and verse 3, you shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment, he was talking about the remnant. Chapter 6, verse 8, I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword. God always has people. It may not look like it sometimes, but God always has more people than we realize. Just ask Elijah. You remember when Elijah withstood all of those prophets of Baal, then Jezebel got after him, and he ran away. And God said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, Lord, I've been very zealous for you. I've just had all kinds of people against me, and everybody has deserted you except me. I'm the only one left. And I know you remember what God said to him. He said, Elijah, I've got 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone, Elijah. 
7,000 people have not given in to idolatry. So look up. Don't be so discouraged. God always has a remnant. We see that here. Even though the northern kingdom was destroyed, even though the temple and the city of Jerusalem were destroyed, God kept a remnant so that his word and his work would continue on. There's a remnant still today of people in this world who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a remnant among the Jews even today and will be until Jesus comes again. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 11 and verse 5. He said, and so even now to this day, there is a remnant of the Jewish people whom God is going to save. We look at the world today and we think the world is just in the wrong direction, going the wrong way. The world is getting awfully, awfully sinfully dark. And it is. We all would agree with that. But that doesn't mean that God's not at work. In fact, it means just the opposite. It means he is at work because he told us in the Bible that before the end comes, it is going to be awfully, awfully dark. As Dr. Rogers used to say, gloriously dark, because it means Jesus is coming. So do not be discouraged. Do not be dismayed. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I look at my watch. I don't know what's going to happen one minute from now. But we don't have to know. But what we do need to know is that God is in control, that God has always had a people, and God is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So there's still much grace in a time of judgment. I think personally that America is undergoing some of the judgment of God right now. But in America, there is a remnant. Now, we ought not be satisfied to say, well, I'm in the remnant and everybody else can just forget it. Our call is to continue to be obedient to the Lord and desire to expand the kingdom, knowing that not everybody's going to listen, not everyone will believe. In fact, most people won't. But we still have the joy and the privilege the opportunity, and the responsibility to share the good news of Jesus. Let him add to his kingdom as he wishes, and let us follow after him and love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For God's grace is abundant, God's grace is wonderful, and God's grace is, say it with me, amazing.